So, fun fact, this is actually the very first episode written by Peter Allen Fields, who, if you're a Star Trek fan, you've probably heard that name before. I'm actually pretty sure I've already brought him up over on Deep Space Nine, because we've already covered stuff he's written in, um, including Duet for the uniform, and in the future we'll be covering In the Pale Moonlight, which is also by him. He also did Inner Light later on here in TNG, so hell of a, hell of a roster of episodes there. He's also really fond of unflinchingly tackling an issue. <clears throat> that being said, given the fact that this is his first episode, and Rick Berman was firmly putting his boot down at this point in history, this was, we are officially in the Rick Berman era of Star Trek at this point, I have a feeling that's why this episode doesn't hit the point, you know, nail on the head the same way that a lot of other episodes do when it comes to these kind of moral complexities or sort of gray situations. Because... The key point of the episode is the forced suicide at 60 issue. Now, that is a thing that's been debated in real life. That's a thing that many people have come up with arguments for and against. The episode doesn't do the for, and that's kind of the problem. In fact, if anything, the episode is portrayed as if when he finally accepts and goes down, he is doing so because, in his own words, he's not the one to lead the revolution. He thinks this should change. He can't. He's not strong enough. The end. You know, it's basically treated as a failure. And that's certainly a valid perspective. And that's certainly a true thing to do. But again, the other side is portrayed universally as wrong. Now, before I go any further, I just want to give special praise to David Ogden Steers, who actually died two years ago. That really made me sad to find that out. Died in 2017. He was uh, probably most famous for his work on M.A.S.H., and he's done actually quite a bit of acting over the years. But I will always remember him for this episode. Not just because I am a Star Trek geek, but because he frickin' nailed it. The man did an excellent portrayal of a man who is reserved and quiet and rediscovering life and facing defeat and determination and a lot of other nuance and subtlety exists in his performance, and I love it. So, that sucks. I also want to mention Loxana Troy. Now, I've talked about Troy before. Excuse me, Loxana Troy before. I've talked about Major Barrett before. To make this 100% clear, I think it's now the fifth time I've said this, I got nothing against Major Barrett. She's an awesome woman. Um, I, I, by every account I've ever read, she is a great person in real life and a great person to work with. I hate Loxana Troy, but that has nothing to do with that. Or, when I say I hate... I've always held that opinion. It's mostly because of the episodes we've already covered here on TNG. And one episode on DS9, the one where she's just projecting her, her love whatever on everyone. I don't even remember the name of that episode, but that episode. But then there were two episodes she had on DS9 which were actually quite good, both basically connecting her to Odo. And I've actually already covered both of those from my perspective, but I'm pretty sure one of those is going to be going live within the coming months here. That was a side of Loxana I really enjoyed. And I said this privately, I think I said this on the show too, I'm going to be gauging my own opinion of her as we go through TNG. This episode is interesting because it starts off and she's just as boisterous, but not as irritating. Like, I don't know if this is on behalf of the script, the actress, or the director, but somewhere along the line, someone basically said, pull it back a bit. You can be on the bridge, you can be, you know, whatever, but she's noticeably and overtly less rude. 
My favorite example of this is actually when she goes to offer lunch to the people in the engineering room. Now, she is still boisterous. She is still pushing herself onto others. That part of her character remains intact. But she could have just went up and just been like, all right, there we go, push all this stuff out of the way, start laying out the spread. Instead, she seeks permission first and makes her case first. I know that's not much, but she wouldn't have done that in her previous episodes, and that's my point. So I feel like we're seeing a little bit better portrayal of the character, in other words. And towards the end of the episode, and this is when Majel Barrett shines, we see a woman who is deadly serious and actually legitimately emotionally impacted by all this going on. And I'll comment on one big scene as we get to it later. But that right there is Loxana, for all intents and purposes, just dropping the masks. Yes, plural. As she just accepts that this is how she feels and this is where she's at and this is something that's hitting her. Very centric. It's getting right into their core there. And that bothers her. And I like that. I like that portrayal of the, I know it's an invalid term, human Loxana Troy. You could tell that they're building off of the, let's call it the reputation of her, from the previous episodes, because the episode begins, start a blah, 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 blah. My mother's on board. And that's all they have to say. This is, whoops, this is uh, something I mentioned in a previous season four episode. By the time you get to season four, or three, really, but by the time you're in season four of a show, you can do scripts, episodes, and concepts you just couldn't before. It wouldn't work before. You can play with expectations. You can state something for the viewers, for the fans. I pointed this out before, right? Uh, when it came to... <sighs> Oh my god, the the Barkley episode we just covered. I can never think of the name of the episode. I always have trouble thinking of the name of that episode. But you know, the previous Barkley episode. You can't really do that kind of a setup unless you already have the viewers who have been watching this show for almost four years at this point, right? Anyways. So then we have the race and their son is dying. Okay, that sucks. Um, when they say dying, too, they mean like soon-ish, like within generations. That is really, really soon for a son to die. Like, relatively speaking, my, like, once, I mean, obviously I'll still be here when this son dies, but most of the other, you know, people around me who are actually human will have been dead for literally millions of years by the time this son dies, unless the supernova project goes forward. But that's not for another three millennia, right? So you can kind of see how insane this is that they've gotten this far. And it's not like this is a short... A small cultured species, there is a casual reference to something that happened two millennia ago in this episode. I'll get to that point later. So this whole thing just kind of makes me go, really? <laughs> okay, okay, whatever. Um, I'm sure glad that your xenophobic nature hasn't prevented you from reaching out over the last few centuries, because anyone, again... We're not a spacefaring species right now. I mean, we technically are, but you know what I mean, right? We live on Earth. This is our home planet. This is our only planet, right? We know when our sun's going to go. We can monitor and check it now. If something started happening to it, we'd find out about that because there are people whose entire job it is to study that thing. I point that out, and that is significant because that, that in, if these people had any kind of tech at all, and they do have spaceships, I remind you, so if these people had any kind of tech at all, they have known that this sun is dying for a long time. Where am I going with all this? A theory. I think these people have known their sun is dying for at least in the centuries range. Bare minimum. And, well, their uniquely, extremely rigid traditionalist perspective has basically prevented them from reaching out to get any help on it. 
and from being able to really do anything to fix it because they don't have an external force to really help them. And as people build off of people's work, build off people's work, nobody, well, like in this episode, gets to the point where they can live long enough to actually be able to finish or conclude whatever they were thinking, whatever train of thought they were on. They could leave notes, but that's it. And who knows if the next generation will even look at those notes or will even try to look at the problem at all because there's nothing obligating them to do that, is there? And so we have a society that, thanks to being almost full-on xenophobic, hasn't reached out for help and hasn't been helping itself. It's only now, in more recent era, that they've actually been like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll reach out to the Federation because we're at the point now where we're going to die in decades rather than centuries, so could you help us, please? And, of course, the Federation says, yes, why the hell wouldn't they? I've got to be honest, I would like to think that even if this was a pre-warp society, they would still say yes if they were reached out to and said, please help us, our son's dying. As I've mentioned before, distress calls and calls for help do uniquely bypass the prime directive situation in multiple circumstances. And as we discussed very recently in the drumhead, a prime directive violation is something that is not necessarily written stone, but something that can be reviewed. So in the case of saving an entire species from a sun detonating... I think that would be acceptable. Then again, given what happens later in the episode with Worf's brother, what the hell do I know? Anyways, I want to once again give praise to David Ogden Steers, uh, the guy who plays um, uh, Timison. He really just nails the gravity of it. He comes across as someone who has... There's a lot of this episode which could have come across as silly or hammy, and none of it does because of him. And because of the excellent actors around him, Majel Barrett does a good job, Patrick Stewart does a good job, everyone manages to nail the gravity of the situation, with with one exception, which I'll get to in a minute. And I like that. So there's this one bit where she says, why not move? You've known this is happening for some time. Why not bail on the system? You don't have to go join the greater galactic community. You can just go somewhere else. Also, as an aside, how many episodes has it been since Clues? Like six? That's two xenophobic races within six episodes of each other. Anyways, so move somewhere else. Well, if we move somewhere else, we won't be us anymore. We'll lose our identity. That is the closest thing to an argument I've ever heard for why land matters. Now, I'm trying really hard not to be judgmental. (laughs) Because I'm not. I'm not actually judgmental. That's not the point. I'm trying not to get across my opinion too severely. That's a more accurate statement. Because I don't give a crap where I live. You know what I mean? If me and my entire species had to move to Mars tomorrow, I'd be like, okay, let's go. It wouldn't mean anything to me because we're just moving. Home is where I am. That's the way I feel. That's the way I think. That's the way I've been since I was a kid. I know people have an adherence and a feel to this is my home and this is my land, and that's been a cause of many, many concerns and, and values and traditions and awesomes and horribles throughout the course of human history. I do get that intellectually. I just don't understand it personally. But this seems like the most extreme scenario, doesn't it? Your entire planet's going to go, Phew! and your concern about leaving is you'll lose your cultural identity because you didn't die? Now we know why that line is put in there, and I phrase that that way very specifically, because the entire point of the episode is that he is concerned he will lose his cultural identity because he doesn't die. But at the same time, I just can't see a logic in that. The episode tries very hard to, to parallel them being willing to die Versus the sun dying. You know, it, it's time has come, blah, blah, blah. And I'll talk more about that topic in a minute. I don't buy the parallel. There's too many differences in the specific variables of the two situations. I, 
that being stated, uh, I don't know. I guess the relative equivalent analogy here would be that rather than trying to fix someone who is ill or injured, they should just let nature take its course. Right? I don't know. This this doesn't quite work out. Like I said, the analogy breaks down. That's my point. That's my entire point here. So uh, they go and try out the, the thing, the star novas. Holy crap, they just nova a star. I guess the universe needed a little more iron in it, so that's something. And uh, he's, of course, heartbroken about this because he has just failed. And that means really bad things for his people. I gotta say, by the way, how the hell do you re rejuvenate a star? Like, there's actually been real-life science done on this very topic, and I am such a massive amateur that I'm not even try to summarize that, other than to say that people have been looking into that in real life. But that seems like the kind of monumental task that is so beyond most of the science of even Star Trek. You know, I, I could see some of the higher-tech people, including the Federation, it's worth noting, being able to pull off this kind of thing under the right circumstances, maybe, you know? Stars are big and terrifying. Anyways... So then Loxana finds out about the death thing. She cries. Good scene, good scene. I want to talk about that, though. I want to talk about why this hits Loxana so hard. Because I've heard some people say before, why does she give a damn? I mean, this is basically just puppy love. In fact, we know, for, excuse me for spoiling, but we know for total certainty she's going to get married at least three more times between now and when she finally leaves the show over on Deep Space Nine. So why does she give such a crap about this guy? He's just some dude who she happens to fall for because he's hot or whatever. Well, oh, and keep in mind, she can't read his mind. So, you know, that's, that's an addendum as well. Thing is, I think it's a twofold thing, my opinion. First and foremost, okay, I guess a threefold thing. The third thing is obviously she's attracted to him. Boom, moving on. The second reason is I think this reminds her of her own mortality. Troy... Deanna Troy, flat out gives this as a possibility earlier and says that, you know, I think this is making you feel very mortal right now. And I think that the idea that someone's life is over, she itself herself says it, you know, um, uh, being discarded because you're worthless, because you're just too old, is kind of a horrifying thought for someone who is getting on in her years to think. And I agree with that. That's a very horrifying thought. So regardless of her connection to him whatsoever, obviously this would hit her hard because now she's being confronted with, well, maybe I'm useless. Well, maybe I'm worthless. Maybe I shouldn't be here anymore. Maybe I'm a burden on my children, you know? The second reason, though, I find more interesting. And by the second, I mean the first because we're going backwards. The first reason I think that this really bothers her is lack lost potential. How many of you guys played Mass Effect Andromeda? I swear I'm going somewhere with this. Please, please bear with me, okay? Now, I played it, and ultimately, I was very meh on it. I gave it like a zero on my scale of pluses and minuses, because it was just right in the middle. It was an aggressively average game, I thought. There were good parts, and there were awful parts, but for the most part, it was right in the middle. And that's my point. Andromeda could have been great. Could have been amazing could have been just a return to form, or even a new form, a brand new style of Mass Effect game, and this whole new arc, and this whole new adventure, and it wasn't. I know this sounds like a strange thing to comment on, but I found myself more and more bothered by this in recent years, by the lack of fulfilled potential. The fact that it could have been something amazing, and wasn't, bothers me more than if it would have been crap. And that's what I think is going through Loxana Troy's mind here. This is someone she likes. 
and now she'll never know what they could have had together. It could have been great, it could have been awful, there could have been up times and down times and happy times. It could have been something to truly fulfill her and make her feel complete and together with someone in a way she hasn't since Jack. She'll never know now. Lost potential. And I think that bothers her more than anything else. So, then we get into the discussion. The traditionalism versus the unorthodox. I will say the usage of Loxana on the unorthodox side was a brilliant one, because she herself champions that very concept. This will indeed be, remain a part of her character for the entirety of the rest of her appearances throughout all of Star Trek. She herself gives this wonderful, wonderful speech to Odo over on Deep Space Nine about how she hates being normal. She hates looking normal. She wants people to notice her. She wants to stand out because, damn it, she just likes pushing and changing and, and affecting boundaries. It actually explains why she is such a boisterous person. And, when she's written a little bit worse, why she is such a jerk to those around her. But, of course, she would be on the side of the unorthodox, the one who wants to change, the one who wants to say, well, I mean, why do that? Why go in this way? Why not just try something else? I should add a little bit of a personal perspective on this, this whole thing. If this whole death thing was in real life, none of my family members, one step up from me, would still be alive. Just to give a little bit of pers personal perspective on that, none of them. They are all... I, actually, I guess she might not be over. All of them I can think of off the top of my head, <laughs> with maybe one or two exceptions, are all 60 or over. Gone. My grandparents are in their 90s. And they're fine. That's with our tech, <laughs> by the way, in real life. My great-great-grandmother lived to be 108. I look at this and I just think, because obviously, again, this is getting back to my point, obviously I'm going to lean on the unorthodox side. I'm not much of a traditionalist person. Except I kind of am. See, the thing is, I'm fine with traditions that have a reason or purpose that is currently relevant as well as past relevant. You have, to, you have to fill both things. If this was a standardized thing, at 60 you get evaluated. And you can then choose to live or die based on certain circumstances, or appeal for an elongation to go up to this range or something like that or whatever. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. But no, 60, bam! We've got the Logan's Run thing going on. Now here's the thing. All of the, I mentioned this before, all of the arguments given in favor of the traditionalist side kind of suck. Because there, this is something that's been argued in real life. And this is something that some people have come up with legitimate arguments for. I don't agree with them, again, to get across my opinion, but I have at least heard legitimate arguments for the matter, legitimate discussion. Here he says 1,500 to 2,000 years ago, people who were too old were just put in homes to die. Okay. Two, 15, let's be generous, 1,500 years ago. I mean, that's basically around 1,000 A.D., to give you a perspective. Okay, I, I don't even want to touch that. So let's just move on. He mentions, you know, the old people should not be a burden to their children. That it would be unfair, it would be cruel. Or should they be forced to choose when exactly they die? That would be cruel and inhuman. No, and then the only thing he makes, the one argument he makes which is close at all, is the argument about, I want to die when I am healthy and strong. Because that way, 
this is, you know, I don't have to go through the, the elongation of terribleness and awfulness, and my family will remember it that way. That's the closest thing to a legitimate argument I hear anyone give in favor of the, of the traditionalist side of this. I suppose I'm, I'm opening up the targeting reticule here, but anybody who wants to give another argument in favor of the traditionalist, traditionalist viewpoint here, the 60-death line, feel free to do so. Because, again, I've heard this discussed before. But instead, he just gives all these specious reasonings, whereas most of the actual reasonings put on her side. Have, have there not be a death line. Have them die at their natural course. There are certain circumstances. She herself gives them the most obvious thing. What if someone who is terminally ill or deathly ill or has a significant disfigurement or illness at 50 and has to endure for another 10 years before they are allowed to commit suicide? Or what about someone who's doing fine at 60? Who doesn't want to die? Did I hear my door? No? Okay, we're good. Um, she even makes the... She makes a comment about the hair, right? The hair argument. Once upon a time, people did this stupid thing, and it became tradition. Now, I like that argument, because even though it is an invalid comparison, because hair and death are not quite connected, although I've heard some people who would argue that point, but the valid comparison that is being made by her is a tradition that has no point should not be followed. That a tradition has to have a purpose. There has to be a reason you're doing it. Otherwise, why are you bothering? Which, again, I obviously agree with. See, it's not... It... So, <laughs> then, of course, she makes the argument about the sun itself. You are a brilliant mind who has been working on this for the majority of your life. Keep working on it. Save this star, right? And all of that makes a significant amount of sense. Then he decides to go ahead and endure. And his stated reasoning is very obvious. I need to keep working on this son. Obviously, he still wants to live. Obviously, he's found a reason for living. Obviously, he loves Luxana. But his core reasoning, the thing that really finally changes his mind, is continuing his work and saving his entire planet. He cares so much about that identity of this planet, right? Well, he proves it because he says he'll go ahead and decide to stay alive. Then the episode loses me a bit. See, we've met Minister Jackass before. I don't remember his name, and I don't care. And in every scene, he is a cardboard cutout of the obstructionist bureaucrat archetype. He doesn't do a lot that is like that, other than cutting off communications in the middle of a discussion, insisting that they do things his way. You'll notice he gives zero arguments, by the way. He gives absolutely no reasoning whatsoever for why he should die, other than it's what is done. It's what has always been done. It's what should be done. And he sends up warships on the threat of the fact that he might not be coming down. Yeah, no, that the, the carbon copy obstructionist bureaucrat right there. So the minister can go screw himself. And then they send a Bajoran woman up for some reason. I think it's uh, Rolaren, something like that. She's doing her hair weird. It's kind of strange. I guess she's infiltrating the planet. No, okay, so Michelle Forbes shows up as uh, Dara. Now... It's always weird to rewatch this episode because I so associate Michelle Forbes with, you know, Ro Lauren. And she's not on the show yet. In fact, funnily enough, she'll actually be joining the show not too long from now, like five, six, seven episodes. It's beginning of season five when Ro Lauren, Ensign Ro, excuse me, uh, finally happens. But anyways, I point this out. I point Dara coming on. They apparently liked Forbes enough to bring her back. That's why that happened, by the way. I bring Dara up because Dara, again gives no excuse or reasoning in favor of the traditionalist viewpoint. I want to... 
<laughs> the closest thing to an actual argument she gives is, I want to be able to have you be my father, resting next to my mother. I want to rest next to you. I want this to be part of your, your life and your family and your legacy. Okay, that's all valid. Why can't that happen anyways? Oh, right, because the government is going to exile him from the planet if he doesn't decide to die. And if he comes back, he's going to have to die. So her argument is that it's his fault for not doing what the government is forcing him to do. So I want to make sure... You see what I mean by the episode being slanted? Again, I feel like this is one of the weaker parts of the episode. It's still a good episode. It still got me. Don't mistake me. In fact, I enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would on repeat viewing. It's just, she gives no valid argument whatsoever. Whatever. So he decides, fine, I'm going to go die. Whatever. And there's actually a really, really good scene where Loxana comes on and says, your loved ones attend your resolution. And he says, you don't have to do this. And she says, oh, yes, I do. And she turns to Picard, and in the most sincere voice I have ever heard her use to Picard, says, don't worry, I will cause no trouble. That is Loxana Troy, the real woman, right there. And she portrays it brilliantly. I like to think that all of them died in about 10, 15, 20 years, you know, after Star Trek was ended, obviously. When their son goes Nova and they didn't fix it and they refused to leave. Anyways, that little nugget of joy out of the way. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'll see you next time.